Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We're continuing our study on eschatology, which just simply means the theology of end times, okay? Um, It is the study of end things, all right? And uh, I want to review a little bit from last week, and I'm going to roll through this today because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm concise, but also that I get all the information in, and I want to try to keep it to about 45 minutes, okay? And uh, I'm really excited. I already, I already have next week's sermon ready to go. Like, I actually had to cut my sermon in two again. Uh, so next week's all ready to go. I'm very, very excited about next week and what I'm going to bring to you next week. Today, I'm excited because we're laying a foundation for that, okay? So just know that today's going to be great. Next week's, I think, going to be awesome, all right? So here we go. Uh, Premillennialism, let's, let's, re, let's define this again so we kind of uh, refresh our memory. Uh, premillennialism teaches the literal 1,000-year millennial reign begins at Christ's return Israel will see the literal fulfillment of kingdom promises as they will reign with Christ from Jerusalem for a thousand years. There are varying views. Some believe the body of Christ will return to reign with him as well. So it'll be this, both the body of Christ and Israel reigning with Christ on earth. Some believe that Israel itself will reign with Christ and that the body of Christ will reign from the heavens. Okay, so we're technically still reigning with him in his presence, but those Spiritual beings that we talked about that left their first estate, that vacated their positions in the heavenlies, that God shared His power with, that the body of Christ, the church, will fill those roles in that period of time. Okay, so those places were vacated, and, and so those are the, kind of the two beliefs. There may be more. If there are, I'm not aware of it, and if there are and you know of one, then we can talk about it. Um, why do I take the premillennialist view? Well, in all of my personal study, it is the most consistent literal and historical view of fulfillment of prophecy. Premillennialism is the minority in Christian thought. It was rejected by these big dogs, these theological big dogs, okay? Augustine, uh, Aquinas, Luther, and Calvin, okay? And so Luther and Calvin were very instrumental in the Reformation. Um, There are things about them I love. There are things about them I don't love, okay? Um, and that's important to understand that just because, um, you know, there's a man that's right on some theology doesn't mean he's right on all of their theology, okay? Um, each of those guys were convinced of millennialism. We are also in the minority when it comes to geography. So there are only a few places in the world where premillennialism is popular, the United Kingdom and the United States. And you may have thought that that like the left behind books, that whole scenario was something that was just kind of thought and believed around the entire world. That's not the case. It's really just those two areas. And everyone else in the world sees what we believe as an American fad. You ask a Christian almost anywhere else in the world, and they will very likely tell you, you guys believe in some weird things, okay? Because that's not how they see it at all. There's a reason for that. I'm going to explain the reason for that. It's a very logical reason why most of the church and all of uh, the world pretty much geographically believe in amillennialism. There's a reason for it. We'll cover that. Um, This particular viewpoint, premillennialism, is attacked by those who disagree in various different ways. 
Uh, the following has been my experience and only speaks to how I felt as I was faced with both amillennial and preterist viewpoints, okay? The approach that is taken by many unfortunately comes across as belittling in an effort to undermine one view and add legitimacy to the other view. Do you understand? So they're going to belittle what you believe so that they can add legitimacy to what they believe. And that's one form of making, kind of attacking a certain viewpoint. Um, I myself have been guilty of arguing a viewpoint in that way as well. It's very easy to do. My go-to weapon of choice is sarcasm. Okay, I love sarcasm and I love making people laugh. And sometimes my sarcasm can be kind of cutting. And, uh, and I recognize that about myself. It's not necessarily the wisest way to, uh, to make your case. Okay, um, in no way, um, it is in no way to convince someone. Um, that's what I'm saying about that particular thing is belittling. And in the long run, it's kind of manipulative because what you're doing is you're kind of uh, massaging the facts, okay? We should never bend or twist the truth of God's Word to prove our personal beliefs. Instead, we should let Scripture speak alone. Sometimes we do it without even realizing, but our approach to Scripture should always be a prayer to be led into all truth. I don't care about winning arguments. I care about preaching and teaching God's Word the way God intends His Word to be preached and taught, okay? Um, I don't have to be right. As a matter of fact, in the last six years, I've learned more about the things I was wrong about than the things I've been right about, okay? You approach God's Word with humility. And when you do that, by that I mean I'm coming to God's Word. Yes, I have some preconceived understandings, but if I'm shown in Scripture in any way that what I believe is incorrect, I will drop that and I will conform what I, the way I live and what I believe to what God's Word says. That is the believer's approach to scriptural study, okay? Um, so here are some things that are said about the premillennialist approach. They say we hold to an escapist theology. They say that we get too caught up in it. They say that this view is only a few hundred years old, and so it can't be legitimate if it's that new, okay? Um, the charge is that premillennialism and dispensationalism, and I'll talk about that in a few weeks as well, as well as the rapture, that these were concocted by a man by the name of John Nelson Darby, who was in fact a genius, and that charge is to a degree true. Uh, but again, it's one example of kind of manipulating and misrepresenting the facts. John Nelson Darby was very instrumental in forming a systematic theology in the areas of dispensationalism and premillennialism, okay? Um, and when I say dispensationalism, just to give you a very brief understanding of that, these are the ages uh, of, from the beginning of time all the way through today. So today we live in what we would call the church age, the age of grace, okay? But before they lived in the age of the law. They had to make sacrifices. It were clearly two different systems of relationship between God and man. In the Garden of Eden, uh, they were in a time of innocence and there was no sin. So that was a different age and a different relationship with God. And it has a lot to do with God's uh, people that He puts in charge and, and how they steward the earth in the, in the way that He has given them authority to do so. Okay? So right now, it's the church's job to spread the gospel and do what uh, God's called them to do. Okay. Um, 
So what Darby did is he took scriptures that have long been taught in the church. There was not one thing that he taught that was uh, unbiblical, okay? And he compiled these scriptures into a systematic way to better explain them and understand them. Uh, if we're studying a topic in, in the Bible, we often do this. We, we find every scripture that has to do with a specific subject. We combine them all, and then we come to a conclusion after studying that entire subject, okay? Now, right here is a systematic theology book uh, about Israel by a man by the name of Arnold Fruchtenbaum, okay? He painstakingly went through every scripture in God's word concerning Israel, and he combined them in a systematic way. You see how thick that is? Now, did Fruchtenbaum come up with the idea of Israel? Did he, um, he named the book, by the way, Israelology, the missing link in systematic theology. So understanding Israel, by understanding Israel, you understand kind of um, how all the other theology fits together and, uh, and how the church relates to that. So did he invent the study of Israel? Of course not. Did he invent a new doctrine concerning Israel? Absolutely not. No on both. And John Nelson Darby did the exact same thing. His work was a compilation of the truth and doctrine that already existed in God's Word. He just simply compiled it. It was not a new doctrine as is claimed, and I will show you that later as we get into what the early church fathers believed, and it wasn't until the 5th century that we see changes in, in eschatology. And there was a very good reason why, in their minds, they changed their eschatology and their beliefs about end times. But the viewpoints of dispensationalism and premillennialism were around... We, you, next week, I'm going to make the argument that it was the position of the New Testament. It was the position of the early apostles and Paul and, and all of those guys, okay? Um, usually those who wish to discredit premillennialism often mention the Left Behind books, okay? Which, again, folks, that's not the Bible. Those are extracurricular, uh, I would call them fictional, absolutely. They're simply writing a book on what they think may happen, and they're dramatizing it just like you would a movie. Like, how many movies have we seen that... Uh, I just we just watched one a couple days ago, and when I actually read the story about what happened, I was I felt offended that they had twisted the facts so much that they made it a com completely different story. You realize, well, they're teaching this thing as if this movie as if it's a historical event, and you find out later that no, they they pretty much twisted it all around like the movie JFK. I mean, you come out of some movies thinking it's history when it's a bunch of bull. All right. Um, they often say, that's what I used to believe, but I've changed my views. So that's one way that they might, um, and it all depends on the attitude and how they say that. Because, um, because if it's done, like I said, in a manner that is belittling, then, then that's not the way you go about it. We all have changed our views. Uh, academia that disagrees with premillennialism, specifically uh, in certain denominational circles, they will paint anyone who believes it as juvenile, uneducated, or just not there yet. Like, you just haven't figured it out yet, but I have. Um, believing someone is just not there yet is fine because we're all, each of us, on a path of discovery in God's Word. Like, as I said, in the last six years, I've learned more from what I was wrong about than what I was right about and correcting my views based on what the Bible actually says. It's off-putting to me uh, as I got older and realized some of the things that I was taught, not purposefully, but because it's cultural and not biblical, right? 
uh, we can look at the story, the Christmas story, and I can show you 10 of them that are misrepresentations of what actually happened in Scripture. It's all throughout Scripture. There are things that all of a sudden when you see it, you're like, why in the world do we teach this when this is actually what the Bible says? So it's a little off-putting. And I've learned so much from just those things that I've discovered. Um, Wow, why do I look at it like this? Why was I taught this when this is actually not the truth? Okay? Um, So in the matter of amillennialism and preterism... I studied through this viewpoint for a whole year, and I came to a different conclusion. Um, those promoting their theological standpoint, um, to those promoting these particular standpoints, I studied it for a year. I didn't preach on it for a year on, on end times prophecy, and I made sure that I studied it as best I could, and, and I came to my own conclusion based on what I read in the Bible. And to those who are promoting these particular stances, uh, they believe it for very good reasons, okay? They have a structure of theology that, that um, to them makes sense. And the only possible explanation for someone like me uh, when that happens is cognitive dissonance, okay? Which is you see the truth and it's just too hard for you to take. It's just too hard for you to, to, to stomach. And so um, you know, too costly to change your views. Maybe as a pastor, I don't want to change my views because then I have to admit to everybody that, oh my goodness, I was wrong one time, right? I might have seen something. I will tell you something. If I discover something in scripture and I'm incorrect, you will be the first to know that I said this, what I've discovered is this, and, and I just want to, I want, I want to invite you guys to study that as well. Okay, so that you can come to your conclusion as well. I do believe there's only one conclusion. There's only one truth in God's word. The problem is that we come to God's word with preconceived ideas, and and that makes it uh, difficult. Okay, Um, so what they say is you retreat back to your former way of thinking to preserve your comfort and your own peace of mind. I can assure you that is not what happened in my case. Okay, I was taken aback by some of the questions that were brought to my attention. It really shook me. I was like, wow, I've never seen that. I don't understand that. You make a very good point. And uh, when they were first presented to me and the way they were presented, it really got my attention to the point that, as I said, I did not teach on these things for an entire year until I got it resolved in my heart and mind. I'm very, very thankful that I was challenged. Don't look at someone who disagrees with you as the enemy. They are challenging you to dig deeper in the Word of God and come to the conclusion and pray through it, asking the Holy Spirit to lead you into truth. And though you may come to a different conclusion altogether, you may come to the same conclusion, all right? We just have to pray in humility and ask the Lord to lead us into truth, all right? Um, I read God's Word from Genesis to Revelation, searching this topic like I never had before, and the more, the more I studied the claims of amillennialism and some of these offshoots, the more conflicts in Scripture that it caused that I could not reconcile. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense at all. If this is actually what happened, and this is what God's Word says, it doesn't fit. That's a conflict. I can't go there. I cannot reconcile those two uh, Scriptures, and that is just impossible. God's Word does not contradict, contradict itself. Okay, um, the, the, in my estimation, it was based on certain interpretations on false dilemmas, okay? Um, 
It took some scripture completely out of context and ignores other scriptures that contradict what is being said entirely. It doesn't take into account Old Testament passages that further clarify what the New Testament verses were referencing, okay? So, for instance, um, the, the Song of Moses is a prophetic um, portion in, in the book of Deuteronomy that was just before the Israelites went into the Promised Land, and it's, it's prophecy that's basically telling us the story of what's going to happen to Israel ahead of time, okay? But there are promises in that, and basically that you'd have to toss that out the window if you were to believe amillennialism or some of these offshoots. Um, again, we all do this to some extent, and rarely is it done on purpose, like, like you know, conflicts and contradictions in Scripture. But I found that much of the belief system was theology, and here's, here's the kicker, this theology that was derived from Catholic theology starting as far back as the 5th century. The Reformation corrected most all theology, okay? So they came and they saw how uh, the, the church had twisted, the hierarchy in the church had twisted and created this uh, system to protect themselves. They would not allow the peasants to have copies of the Bible. And so they basically told people what the Bible said and the people were not allowed to come to their own conclusions and study it on their own. And so what happens is, of course, when, <laughs> when Luther actually starts reading Scripture, he's like, that's not what it says at all. Okay, and he has this major um, revelation, and of course we see that it changes the course of church history from then on. Well, so what they did is they corrected almost all theology, which soteriology—that's a hard word to say. Soteriology is the is the theology of salvation, and ecclesiology is the is the theology of the church and what we believe about the church, and it did an incredible job at changing that and, and reforming that, but it stops short of correcting the falsities in Catholic eschatology. And the main thrust was amillennialism, okay? This was the conclusion that they came to. So because Roman Catholicism is still the major, majority system of faith throughout the world uh, on planet Earth today, uh, premillennialists are in the minority historically, geographically, and even here in this country where we've had the most influence, okay? Um, we are still in the minority. We are a small piece of the pie in, in the overall um, church, those who are part of the church, okay? So there were really, there were reasons why they believed what they believed. And as I said, it wasn't until the fifth century that those things began to change. And I will cover that in a few weeks, all right? So, but here's the deal. No matter what you believe, I have some very, very close friends that I love with all my heart that take the, uh, what I would say loosely, the preterist view. I have a, a best friend that was my best friend growing up, and he is an amillennialist, and I still love them, and, uh, and, and we do not allow it to come between us or cause conflict. Sometimes that's very difficult. But we need to stop fighting one another on these things. We need to make a biblical case for premillennialism, and here's how we got to do it. We have to do it with consistency of interpretation. We have to do it without speculation. We have to do it without newspaper exegesis, which means that we're reading 
uh, the newspaper from Israel and we're like, oh, oh, here we go. It's going to happen. We're right on the doorstep, right? It, that very well could be, but we shouldn't claim it as it's a done deal. Do you understand what I'm saying? We shouldn't claim something. Is, we should claim something is a done deal when it's a done deal, right? When, when uh, we have hindsight and we can point to it and say, that was a fulfilled prophecy. But until then, all we see is that we're moving in that direction and the board is being set. Do you all understand? That's consistency in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with saying we're in the end days because they talked about it early on in the early church. They said we're in the end days. Matter of fact, uh, Pentecost was a, was a prophecy fulfilled about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh in the end days. Okay, So, um, so we need to understand that some of the things we've been taught growing up or in the church may not be exactly biblical, but may come from more of a cultural place than a biblical place, okay? Um, without conspiracy theories, all right, that's difficult, especially right now. There's a lot of those things flying around, and, um, and I think it's important to be a part of what's going on. I think it's important to be part of the process, but... Let's be very careful about what information that we're promoting unless we've actually confirmed it and we understand that it's truth. Because the body of Christ should never be a part of spreading something that is not truth, okay? Um, and, and y'all, that's hard these days because we see something and I want to jump on it and it rings true and I want to jump on it. But let's really do our due diligence to make sure that what we're promoting is actually the truth, all right? Um, and I'm really, I'm, spe I'm specifically talking about uh, eschatology, but it, it certainly doesn't hurt in our current environment, uh, you know, with politics and, and all the division that's going on right now. It's truly exhausting. Um, again, without hype and date setting, without turning locusts into Apache helicopters and such like that, okay? Because, yeah, so what people will do is they'll read the book of Revelation and there are these giant locusts with, sting, with a sting in their tail and they sound like, you know, hor uh, horses' hooves and they have the face of a man and they're like, well, that's an Ap Apache helicopter. Well, I mean, I mean, I could see that as possible, but let's not say that it is, right? Another one that's often quoted is that the Antichrist is going to receive a mortal wound and, that he, and then he's going to raise up and they always say he's going to be shot in the head. Well, where in Scripture does it say he's going to be shot in the head? Let's reserve putting an exclamation point on something until we actually see it take place. And by the way, if you see that take place, you're in trouble, okay? Um, talk to me before the, uh, we leave today so we'll make sure you're not witnessing the, whatever that is when the Antichrist uh, receives that mortal wound, okay? Um, the younger generations, because of all of this, our parents uh, got in, and I'm not millennial, I'm kind of in between, right? But, uh, but I was kind of on the tail end of all of this. And I do, I like going to prophecy conferences. I think it's a blast. But I will tell you, I'm, I'm often the youngest person in the room, which is saying something, okay? And here's why. Because the millennials have grown up with their parents talking about all of these things, saying it's right on the doorstep, newspaper exegeting, right? And when nothing happens, when the date setting and the speculation goes nowhere, it causes this generation to completely dismiss all things regarding the end time prophecy, okay? Why? Because the Bible tells us hope deferred makes the heart sick. So if someone's hoping for something, and that's why I would caution all of you 
um, about all of these things. I was talking to uh, the Kings this morning about how you see some things on television and I'm getting constant like information that's coming to me like on Facebook Messenger. And it seems like there's two realities out there right now and I have no idea what to believe, okay? Um, so there's a lot of misinformation out there right now regarding a lot of things. And I would just tell you, guard your heart and don't buy into something until you know that it's true because hope deferred makes the heart sick. Let me just tell you this. I want to see Christ return. I want to see him come and bring justice and crush his enemies under his feet. With all of my heart, that's what I want to see. With all of my heart, I'm sick and tired of the evil and wickedness, how it just gets to run rampant and run free and nobody does a thing about it. We're promised these arrests are going to take place and these people are going to be brought to justice and we don't see it. Well, let me tell you something. That may not happen in our day and age. I pray that it will every day, but if it doesn't, you can be assured that when Christ returns, he will crush his enemies under his feet and all wickedness will be brought to light and he will bring to justice every single person that has done wrong. That is our promise. So trust him, okay? Have hope in that. It, it breaks my heart to see the things going on. But let's put our hope in Him because He is the Ancient of Days and He knows the end of the story from the beginning. That's not my notes. That's free, okay? Y'all got all that for free. Okay. Uh, so just remember, it's like the boy who cries wolf. You lose your credibility when you promote things and, and, it, has, uh, and it doesn't come to uh, fruition. So their conclusion is, if they were so wrong about that, then they must be wrong about all of it, okay? And again, this has been uh, devastating for eschatology and the teaching of end times prophecy in the church. So today, let's look at two main views, amillennialism and premillennialism, and we're going to compare the two and how, um, how the hermeneutical approach of both parties, okay? By the way, we're going to talk about hermeneutics tonight at the Bible study. We're going to talk about how to open God's Word and rightly divide the Word of truth in a way that you are not misrepresenting or putting God's Word in a blender, okay? Which is 90% of what's happening today, all right? So our eschatology, end times theology, is shaped by our hermeneutics or our process of interpretation. So the amillennialist approach to interpretation. And this is not me saying this. This is uh, what they proclaim themselves. The grammatical historical meaning of a passage is not necessarily God's intended meaning of that passage. The New Testament may be interpreted literally except for the book of Revelation. Why? I don't know, but they get to choose that that one's not supposed to be interpreted literally. But the Old Testament prophecy is to be interpreted allegorically. Okay, so it's a shadow or a, or, or a type of what was to come. And we do see prophecy buried in the pages of the Old Testament. But Abraham was real and his life was real and he had a relationship with God. The purpose of his life was not simply to be a type or shadow for you and I. It was a real relationship with God and God had a purpose and a plan in what he was doing through Abraham and his descendants. Okay, so don't negate what God was doing in them by just saying, well, it's a type and shadow, okay? Language can be transcended. Again, this is, their, this is how they interpret. There may be meaning behind the meaning of a passage, all right? New Testament authors show us that the Old Testament has hidden meanings. So it becomes almost this 
secret knowledge kind of thing, okay? Like there's secret knowledge and you just really have to, um, you really have to be spiritual to see it for what it really is. Israel, Zion, and Jerusalem in the Old Testament passages mean the church. Let me clarify. I'm not saying, I'm saying this is their approach, all right? So I'm not saying that should be our approach. That's what they say, that Israel, Zion, and Jerusalem in the Old Testament passages mean the church. Now, let's look at how premillennialism um, interprets Scripture. The, the grammatical, historical meaning of a passage is God's intended meaning of a passage. What if your wife said to you, I love you, but it's kind of an allegorical love. You know, like it's, it's not, I mean, it, you know, like I don't, <laughs> you can't really count on it. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of iffy, you know what I mean? There, there needs to be something that's solid ground for us to believe in. All right, so both the New Testament and Old Testament should be interpreted literally by default. Language is incarnated, right? The, the very words are divinely inspired. And when I'm saying this, I'm, I'm talking about the original text, the, the Hebrew, the Greek, the Aramaic. And that's why when we study God's Word, if we want to get proper clarity, we don't go reading the, pas- the, the, the Passion version of the Bible. If you have one, the, the Passion version, throw it in the garbage, okay? It's not a version. It's not a version. It's, it's a ridiculous attempt at... Um, in my opinion, it is, it's satanic in nature, demonic, because it twists God's word in such a way that it changes the meaning of so many of the passages in Scripture. All right, language, again, language is incarnated. The very words are divinely inspired. The passage means what it says, and even figures of speech are figuratively pointing to a concrete concept. Like last week when I said the sword proceeds out of his mouth, that doesn't mean he's going to spit a sword at someone. It means that he will, the sword to those people had a specific meaning. When you take up the sword, you are taking up the sword to topple those who are in authority at the time. So when Christ returns by his spoken word, he will topple these uh, evil dominions and powers and principalities and authorities with his spoken word and even human authorities that have set themselves up against God, okay? So yes, it's a figure of speech, but it points to something that we already know Scripture clarifies. Um, New Testament authors do not reinterpret Old Testament passages such as the Old Testament meaning is nullified. So we do not change just because we're in the the church age. We do not look at the Old Testament and say, oh, well, that's not what that really means. Now that we're in the New Testament, that's what that means. No, you don't get to go back and change the meaning of the Old Testament. It means what it means. It was divinely inspired and it means what it means. Okay. New Testament is reality and the Old Testament is reality. They're both reality. Israel, Zion, and Jerusalem in the Old Testament, believe it or not, mean Israel, Zion, and Jerusalem, okay? You can be assured of that, okay? Uh, this divide is nothing new, and it's, and it's not even unique to Christianity. Um, Aristotle and Plato disagreed on this very thing when questioning reality itself. 
so look, if you'll look at this picture, you see that Plato and Aristotle, one of them is pointing up, saying that um, the universals above, that is true reality in the non-physical realm. And then you've got Aristotle who's saying his hands down here and he's saying, no, it's the particulars below, okay? We can rationalize and categorize the real things are here. But um, so we ask the question, is reality transcendent? Is reality to be found in the physical realm? And these two philosophies have influenced the church throughout history and when pushed to the extreme are responsible for many of the false teachings that we have seen over the centuries and still persist in the body of Christ today. So what have we learned in the beginning? It was heaven and earth, right? God created the heavens and the earth. He created spiritual beings and physical beings. Uh, the redeemed spiritual and the redeemed physical together as one reality in Eden. That's the end of the story. That's where we're headed. That it's not just above or below. It's both. It's the spiritual and the physical. That's God's plan. In the end, it will be as it was in the beginning. And let me just encourage you to be here next week because we're going to talk a lot about that. And it is mind-blowing when you start putting Scripture together and connecting the dots. You will see things in a way you never have before. And it's so encouraging, okay? Um, but again, in the end, the redeemed physical creation and the redeemed spiritual creation combine into one new eternal reality. And even right now, we, we can make a mistake by saying, oh, God is, he, you know, God is uh, supposed to be understood here in the reality of, uh, of everyday life and all of that. Uh, and he's not some God somewhere far off, you know, that's transcendent and, and too, too big for us to understand. I disagree, and God's word disagree. He's both. He is both present in our lives every single day, and he is the, and he is the infinite, almighty, transcendent, sovereign God that you cannot fathom or understand. He's both. Christ was the personification of God himself who walked in man's flesh and gave his life a ransom for us. So we can know God in both his transcendent fashion, and one day we'll know him fully, but we also can know him in the person of Jesus Christ and in daily walking in the spirit of God and having a relationship with him in that way. So he is both transcendent and present, okay? But again, when this is misunderstood or twisted, we have teachers pushing what Paul calls speculations, and then these speculations begin to spread and become doctrines, and they cause great deception until someone comes along to right the ship and sway our theology back in line to where it's supposed to be. All right? So again, that's what happened in the Reformation, and thank God for that. But they didn't get it all right. That's what I want you to understand. They stopped short of reforming the uh, eschatology area of all of theology. All right, so let's do a commentary comparison, like a case study here of two different approaches as they're applied to the Bible verse, which is a prophecy in Zechariah 12, 9, and 10. This is on the pages, and I should put it up here as well. Verse 9, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now remember, this is like 600, 700 years before Jesus was crucified. And it's specifically talking about they will look upon me whom they pierced. Okay? Incredible. 
and they will mourn for him. They rejected him and they will see him coming in his glory and they will mourn because they missed it as a people. They will mourn for their people that they could have embraced him back then, but as a people, they rejected him, okay? And it says they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So it's going to be both bitter tears and happy tears because this is the return of the Messiah. Now let's see how Matthew Henry, who I used to read his commentaries all the time, but I stopped once I realized that Matthew Henry was an amillennialist. And I'm not sure where his amillennialism creeps into his commentary, okay? If it's a pretty straightforward verse, then sure, use Matthew Henry. But if it's something regarding eschatology, you'll see here. So Matthew Henry, this is important, uh, is an 18th century amillennialist. And like I said, for the record, this is his take based on spiritualizing or allegorizing the passage. So I don't want, as I'm reading this, I don't want you to like miss what I just said and then think I'm actually telling you something that I want you to believe in, okay? I'm showing you this to contrast the differences in interpretation. Now, if you, if you study this and you take this approach, then, then that's, that's, free, that's fine for you, okay? I'm just showing you the comparison and why I do not adhere to this particular form of interpretation. So here's what he's saying about the scripture we just read. The day here spoken of is the day of Jerusalem's defense and deliverance, the gospel day to Christ's victories over the powers of darkness and the great salvation He has wrought for His chosen, on whom the blessings are poured out, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the church is Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, all true believers that have their conversation in the heaven are inhabitants of this Jerusalem, and to them this promise belongs. Do you see what he did there? Henry is transcending the meaning of the text, and he's forcing a non-literal meaning on the text. He's saying that Jerusalem equals the church. He's saying that this is not an actual war or armies in a geopolitical location, but he's saying that this is an ongoing spiritual battle that every Christian deals with sin and the powers of darkness. And in his view, this was fulfilled prophecy when Christ was resurrected from the dead. They believe that, that Satan was bound on the day of resurrection. So they believe right now Satan is bound. And I'm not sure if you guys have looked around recently, but <laughs> um, that's a little hard for me to, to buy into, okay? Now, let's compare Justin Martyr, who was a second century. Now, the closer... the So Matthew Henry was 18th century. Justin Martyr was second century, all right? And... Um, what this is saying is Justin Martyr was much closer within two degrees of when Christ walked the earth and some of the apostles that Jesus taught, taught Justin Martyr's uh, teacher, okay? So he's just two degrees away from the actual teachings of the apostles, all right? And here's what it's saying. Here's what he says. <clears throat> And what the people of the Jews shall say and do when they see him coming in glory has been thus predicted by Zechariah the prophet, and they rend not their garments, but their hearts, tribe by tribe. So he's talking specifically about the 12 tribes of Israel. Tribe by tribe, they shall mourn, and then they shall look upon whom 
him whom they have pierced. And that's from the book, The uh, First Apology. And then this is another excerpt from a, a different book called Dialogue with Trifo, because a lot of their writings we got from letters, okay? And a lot of these letters were, co- were recovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Jesus shall appear in glory and above the clouds, and your nation Israel shall see and know him whom they have pierced, as Hosea, one of the twelve prophets, and Daniel foretold, okay? Now, these are two completely different ways of looking at this passage. Justin Martyr is saying that this is specifically talking about the Jewish people. The church, is no, the church didn't exist when Zechariah was written, okay? Um, it, and he believes that it's something that has not happened yet. It's talking about an event in the future, and his take is that this prophecy is yet unfulfilled, okay? So you've got two different takes on this passage. One is amillennialist, one is premillennialist. One takes it literally, one takes it allegorically, okay, or spiritually. So Matthew Henry says the kingdom is here. He says the Old Testament, oh, well, let's switch over to, since I have them, uh, well, I don't have them side by side. Here, okay, so Matthew Henry says the kingdom is here. The Old Testament is written to Gentile Christians. The Old Testament has nothing to say about the future, only the present, okay? If the Old Testament seems to be talking about something of the world, allegorize the meaning to get past the literal wording. So if it doesn't make sense to me in its physical form, oh, well, that must be allegory. I need to, I need to play with the meaning then. I either need to spiritualize it or allegorize it so it will fit into my personal framework of belief. Okay, so what did Justin Martyr do? Uh, he believed the kingdom in its fullness is yet to come. Only some of the Old Testament applies to Gentile believers. This passage is about the Jews, the nation of Israel. The Old Testament is a literal book whose literal meanings still speak about unfulfilled prophecies that are yet to come in the future. So we can look ahead with hope. Justin Martyr's position was the position of the early church until St. Augustine in the 5th century and it is arguably the position of the New Testament itself. And I realize that is a bold claim, but I want to look at the evidence, okay? So, let's ask this question. What is the New Testament eschatological hermeneutic? How does the New Testament look at the future? Are Old Testament prophecies shadows that are fulfilled in the current age today? Are some Old Testament prophecies genuinely unfulfilled, like we haven't seen them fulfilled yet. And so therefore, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's something ahead in a time in which these prophecies are going to be fulfilled, right? When Christ returns. And next week, we're going to start right there in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We're going to cover scripture that will give us an understanding of whether Old Testament prophecies are in the past and already fulfilled, or if they are in the future and are unfulfilled, And I believe the New Testament speaks very clearly about this particular subject. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete 
be comforted, be like-minded, and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you.